Welcome back to the best of five years of public address radio on Radio Live. One of our more notable guests, and more than once, was Professor Sir Peter Gluckman, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, who talked to us about relations between the media and scientists. I've felt an admiration for those who were able to talk, uh, explain what they were doing to the public well in, this, in science. And I think given that the public is affected by science, generally pays for the science that's been done, they have a right to understand why we're doing something, what we do, what it's, what it will mean, what it will not mean, and what its implications are. As my career in science has progressed from being a young scientist to being somewhat older, uh, I become acutely, more acutely aware that all the complex issues of the world involve science and technology, both in creating and in solving them. And that science should not be arrogant. Science should be well communicated to the public. The nature of science has changed, and the public needs to appreciate that, as does the media. And But that it's only when the public has a full understanding of what science will mean and do for improving the human condition, for sustaining our environment, and for assisting our economic growth, that politicians can and will act. This is all very important because the nature of science itself has changed. Yes, there is still a lot of what I call linear science, that is where science is setting out to solve a particular problem. Did birds evolve from dinosaurs? Yes, they did. How many species of kiwi are there? Well, there's more than there were before because with new molecular biology we discovered that there's, there's five, not four species. of that. That's linear science in a traditional model. But now there is what some people call post-normal science. I don't quite like that term. Uh, uh, or what I would simply call the science of complex systems. where The science is about very complex systems which involve lots of interactions, many of them not entirely predictable in a linear sense, and, and feedback loops and so forth. Would climate science Climate be? science, obesity science, biosecurity science food security science, water security science. These are all areas, urban science, these are all, traffic science. These are all areas where the science is not about giving an absolute answer. The science is actually about understanding what all the interactions are and making the best prediction on what, the result, what, what perturbations in that system might mean. Among the more shocking natural disasters we've covered over the last five years were the Victoria bushfires of 2009, when correspondent Ryan Hutchings went to interview those who'd lost their livelihood and their loved ones. Uh, and we probably got about a minute and a half warning that it was coming. So um, at the time we had 25 people here at Salador having a birthday party. Diane went home because the, the sense that something was wrong was, was enormous and Diane went home, ran the cattle and sheep down into the dam paddock and picked up the cat to bring back here. I went and um, asked the guests to stay here um, and uh, help themselves to the wine while I went out and investigated a spot fire that happened about four to 500 metres down the road and I wanted to see which way the wind was burning so I jumped in the ute and went down there. Um, determined that it was burning away from us so I was fairly happy with that. Came back to... Uh, to Steels Creek Road and thought I'd better investigate a fire that I'd heard of was to starting down near Sticks Winery in Glenview Road. I turned left to go down there and ran straight into the fire that was coming at us and that was the warning we had. I just um, flames and smoke and did a pretty rapid U-turn and raced back to home, told my son and his mate to get down to cellar door because we were never going to stop it. It was just coming too fast. As I drove out onto the road, the fire front 
was right beside the ute and, and I was just covered in smoke. I couldn't see the bonnet of the ute. And I didn't, uh, I just sat there for a second and thought, what next? And I thought, oh, I'll just do a complete left-hand turn and, and um, I'll run into the bank beside the driveway and uh, then I can bounce off the bank and get down to cellar door driving by touch. So I started to do that and um, set a headlights in front of me. I pulled up alongside it and it was a convoy of 10 cars that were about to head into the smoke and into the fire. So I turned them around and sent them down to cellar door and about another 20 or 30 people followed them in uh, who were coming down Steels Creek Road who couldn't get out as well. So we were all here, about 50 of us, watching the fire coming. There were some interesting things happened at cellar door while there was 50 people here and the fire coming at us. Uh, people reacted in different ways and some guy was uh, panicking badly that he was going to be burned to death in the building and I said, no, you'll be right, mate. Um, if, if push comes to shove, we'll just walk down and jump into the dam. With that, a woman was crying hysterically on a mate's shoulder and I said, don't worry about it, we'll be all right, don't worry. And she said, oh, how deep's the dam? And I very insensitively said, oh, deep enough to drown in. And that was a big worry. She was going to drown in the worst bushfire in Australian history. Then this other woman was, must have been from Collingwood, she was going off a tree. Um, the, the, we'd put the, the, the bull and, and, a, and a steer and all the sheep in the dam. And the bull was going to eat her. She was terrified that the bull was going to eat her. I assured her that the bull was very vegetarian. And, and she'd be as right as rain. It was a big sook and it would run the other way. Then this other... Uh, lady, I just couldn't believe it. I, I had to walk away. She said, I couldn't possibly walk through the paddock. I'd ruin my shoes. <laughs> and she was serious. So um, I don't know whether they were fair income people or whether they actually understood what was happening or, or whether that was a reaction to the fear of the, of the fire. But some of the stories from up the road are just outstanding. There's a little old lady who lives up there. And the fire was coming and a little dog, a fox terrier, sensed it and, and forced her out of the house and pushed her down into the dam. And uh, the dam was ringed with fire and the helicopter went down and rescued her and pulled her out of the dam. And she's 92 years old and she grabbed the little dog and, and got winched out of a dam. And that's what I want. I want to be 92 and winched out of a dam. That'll do. That's an ambition. The best thing for me about being a journalist is the chance to meet new people every day, each with their own fascinating lives. One such character was Andrew Gordon from animation giant Pixar. You've given a talk earlier today about the various stages of production to people out there in radio land that maybe don't know what an animator is or what your specific role is, because you're not sitting there drawing on the transparencies these days, aren't you? Uh, you know, briefly, what it is you do? Well, the simple kind of layman's answer to that is first, like, you know, have you ever, have you ever played with your toys when you're a kid? And you know how you make them act? You know, you can make them kind of walk around and they have little personalities, right? An animator is essentially doing that in a sense, but to a higher level of detail, where they really are controlling every movement of the gesture, the movement, the facial expression. And you're, you're in a sense trying to tell a story. You know, the story is set by the time an animator gets it. And you're describing what is happening in that scene. Let's say Woody needs to come up to a fire hydrant and see his friends, he thinks, being crushed in a, in a garbage compactor. You have to get the emotion in there of, oh, my God, no, us, Jesse, you know, and, and get that acting into the character, right? And so you're in charge, not necessarily with, obviously, the voice. You're charged with the acting and the action, right? So you're, they're like, you know, we are like the actors of the studio in terms of the characters who are making the performances come alive. You mentioned the incredible. 
because it was the first um, sort of movie starring a largely sort of human cast. Um, what's that? There's a, there's a theory, isn't it, that if you get too close to being realistic, people don't like it. Uh, yeah. Uncanny Valley. Right? It's just um, design-wise, when you get close to too close to a human character, it looks creepy. They look dead in the eyes. I think that's one of the reasons why Avatar succeeded so much is because it was a, a pushed character design. The eyes were really big. You know, they had a little bit more exaggerated features, so you really were able to kind of emote with them. When it's too close to humans, we know way too much how a human being looks, and so we stop the problem very quickly. What happened? What will happen? When we get to when we get to the point where we can go to human problem. After the break, more of the best of five years of public address radio. 